0: Welcome
1: to I'm Absolutely Fine, the podcast from the middle that looks at all the glamour and indignity of
0: being a grown-up. So, a gynecologist and an investment banker walk into a bar. Are you telling me a joke? No, I'm telling you about the founders of Hanks who are bravely sponsoring this episode of I'm Absolutely Fine. Okay, tell us more. Happily, Hanks is a sex-positive, female-founded business. Founded in 2017 by two best friends who quit their jobs in gynaecology and banking to tackle the penis-centric, outdated and inadequate condom aisle situation. It offers trusted contraception and intimate health treatments for women.
1: Hank's condoms and lube are developed to be female-friendly. Imagine that. And they are all vegan because, as Hank
0: say, the only animal in the bedroom should be you. Their products are also environmentally friendly because...
1: If you are making the earth move, you should be taking care of it too.
0: Condoms, lube, the pill, the morning after pills, cystitis treatments and the rest. Plus, it's all delivered to you in packaging as elegant as your skin cares.
1: So we are delighted that Hanks are offering listeners a Hanks Free Set, which includes two of their best-selling vegan biodegradable condoms and two samples of their water-based, toy and condom-friendly gentle lube plus a discount for their next order at Hank's. You just need to
0: pay £3.50 for postage and packaging. Just go to hanksofficial.com forward slash and get it on. Hello everybody, I'm Annabelle and I'm absolutely fine, but regular listeners of this podcast will know that I'm undergoing something horrifying called sleep training <laughs> because I'm an insomniac so I have to sleep train myself like a baby, like a sort of angry, deranged baby. And there are three main rules. Just to recap, I, sorry, I'm even boring myself, but I'm so tired. I have to go to bed incrementally later every night. When I wake up in the morning, I have to get up and do something relaxing and then go back to bed and then go up and do something relaxing and get worse than just lying there in the state of hysterical existential dread for three hours. And I'm not allowed to nap, which is probably the worst bit. But This week, I now have to go to bed at the horrifying time of 11.30. And okay,
1: I'm done. Like, we have to stop. This is too much. 11.30? 1130.
0: 11.30, I have to go. You're know, bearing in mind I'm getting up at four. And last night I was struck by a terrifying thought, which is that Married at First Sight Australia is about to end. And that I'm obsessed with. God, it, it, Australians are hilarious. And it's people's hearts, and some of them are amazing arseholes, and some of them are absolute angels, and it's just fascinating and the experts keep asking things like how is the intimacy and I love it um and uh, it's about to end in which case how the fuck am I going to stay up past nine forty-five? it's become my constant companion so um suggestions on a postcard please can't be scary can't be sad can't really have a narrative arc because I'm too tired to follow it so uh what else am I going to be watching how are you em
1: oh I'm absolutely fine Annabelle but in keeping with the theme I have watched so much Grey's Anatomy now that I I think I'm a doctor and I wake up every morning and I think oh my god I need to check people's pulse ox.
0: Terrifying. Um,
1: it's a terrifying thought because because I would make a genuinely awful doctor. You and um, I would
0: both but, make genuinely terrible doctors in completely different ways. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but uh, but it's okay because we are going to talk about sex which I love to talk about and we are delighted to welcome Sophia Smith-Gayla to the podcast. Now Sophia was a BBC reporter who started messing around with something called TikTok during the pandemic, not with dances, but with reporting and journalism. And she quickly became one of the go-to accounts for news and views and has since become a reporter at Vice. Now she's here to talk about her first book, Losing It, which is about debunking the virginity myth and proposing a new template for sex education for the 21st century. It's a must for anyone who has young people in their life and it will make you endlessly angry about the sexual myths peddled at girls and boys for generations. Enough, we say. Anyway, hello, Sophia, how are you? I'm absolutely fine. Uh, But sometimes I do wonder,
2: are these the side effects of the pill I'm on, or is this simply my personality? (laughs) (laughs)
0: this is a lifetime of wondering about that yes exactly (laughs) come on in the water's lovely (laughs) oh my god yes is this x or is it just my horrible personality (laughs) didn't i read this week that they really are threatening to produce a male pill yes i mean that that really really is about to happen
2: and from the little i've read about it it's quite interesting in how it purports to be non-hormonal which, you know, for for us a lot would be revolutionary. Wouldn't it? And I know that in early studies and early trials, it's what a lot of men were reporting was the reason why they didn't want to take the pill or or take an equivalent, because they didn't want it to
1: affect their hormones.
0: Oh, oh bless ooh, them.
1: Ooh. I know it's it's so angry making if you think about all the research in all of the years that have been that has been done that has absolutely either not included women at all or neglected, you know to um, to think about female conditions, or even not even bothered to, um, to, if it did actually make a change for women, just threw it away because it didn't do anything for men. I mean, it's endless. I noticed in your book, one of my, my favorite of the angry making statistics was that it was only legal, made legal in 1993 in the US, that women had to be included in research for clinical trials. About women? 93, no, about anything, yes. any drug. 93.
0: I mean, that should just But been... you know when Apple launched, with all their health stuff, there was nothing in it about menstrual cycles. And then there was an... Uh, there was, there was a, you know, outrage, and then they inserted it. I even love the title of your book, Losing It, because isn't it appalling that the idea that when you have sex for the first time, particularly as a woman, you are immediately poorer? There is less of you.
2: That's the point I really try and get across in the book, that it doesn't matter how much... Sexual freedom, we ourselves b- believe we're able to access or enjoy. You know, this is very subjective and dependent on our own backgrounds and, and cultural backgrounds. But the fact that this is still part of our phraseology and vocabulary and the fact that people will still choose to identify or self identify as virgins or, or non-virgins and that this somehow confers something about our status in the book I talk about it's everything from whether you think it's something precious to protect or whether you think it's a stigma to rapidly lose both are still connoting some kind of value on your sexual activity and inactivity and if, if we were truly living in a sex positive world in which you are not judged uh, by your sex life how on earth is it we are still judging and self-judging when it comes to first-time sex?
0: One of um, my favourite bits in your book, there are many favourite bits, um, the fury, the fury, is when you talk about uh, how in Catholicism female virginity is prized in the cult of the Virgin Mary, Obviously, which is sort of horrifying to me. And Simone de Beauvoir labelled that as the supreme victory of masculinity. So you talk about the perfect mother, perfect celestial bride, perfect virgin, all perfectly impossible mutual identities for human women. But when you add into that, you're meant to somehow coexist with yourself as a perfect celestial bride and a highly sexualized, competent, you know, seductive, alluring, sexually active woman. It's truly weird not to mention impossible.
2: I saw it. It was on either Instagram or TikTok, but someone was speaking about how, you know, lots of young women feel like there's an expectation, as you describe, to be both good in bed and have a low body count. That's, that's the yes. wording that they used. And it's true. It's, it's, it's completely ridiculous. No, none, no expectations should be held whatsoever. You know, we should get to define the sex lives we do or don't want
0: to lead for ourselves. It shouldn't be up to someone else to, to define it for us. Can we talk a little bit about the state of sex education in schools, the parlous state of sex education in schools now and how surprisingly lacking it is really?
2: Yeah, I mean, I grew up in Barnet in North London, went to school in St Albans. So a lot of what I know about is about the English state of affairs. It is slightly devolved and different throughout the UK. But England is the most embarrassing. So I like to really, you know, pick it apart and hold it to account. We, we didn't update our, our guidance on sex ed for about 20 years. I was at school bang in the middle of this 20 years. And if you think about how much the internet and social media have opened young people up to a lot more, a lot more fun and information as well as bad stuff and misinformation it's ridiculous that this wasn't sort of better safeguarded in schooling it wasn't until the late 2010s that sex education was made compulsory so this is relationships and sex education so primary school students in the in england should be learning about relationships education and then that becomes relationships and sex education once we enter into secondary school and it's quite frightening that it hasn't been compulsory for schools to teach it for such a long time. Not much money was given to train teachers across the country to be able to now deliver this compulsory sex education. Charities believed that across England, teachers needed about 60 million pounds. The government gave six million pounds. And I, I can see the looks on your faces and uh, you're exactly right <laughs> you you clearly think how i feel and think as well and another point that i wanted to make is just that lots of us are used to it not having been given much priority in school timetables which are really busy teachers are sort of stressed and stretched out enough i think it can feel like adding yet another thing onto the plate but obviously with high quality training and with resourcing it, it doesn 't feel you know so onerous to try, to try and attempt to deliver this to young people as they deserve
0: but you know it 's another thing to do with education where it 's like yes, the timetables are really busy and and i 'm glad that they 're learning about Roman centurions, but that will serve them less well in life than learning about sexual safety and, and, and health and uh, and maybe tax, you know, it's, it's, you know, that maybe some prioritising needs to be done throughout the time. But I find myself trying to teach my seven-year-old about consent to using the cat. or well, not using the cat, but like, you know, if he doesn't want you to pick him up, you have to understand he doesn't want you to pick him up. you know, thinking, oh, my God, is this a way to start?
1: He may change
0: his mind halfway through. And that's, and that's
1: fine. Absolutely <laughs> fine. But I think as well, like, so much, it's so funny to think that things like sexual education, and particularly the sort of the slant that's put on the parlous amount that is taught, but the way that women are viewed in society, all of these things all contribute to, to so much about us, our struggles in the world, in the sense that, you know, whether it's repression, sexual repression, whether it's sexual violence, whether it's, you know, harassment, all of these things, which are, you know, all interlinked in terms of, how we feel how female identity and how what prevents us from I think going forward and and achieving our full potential but I mean it would all come down to kind of you know a really great sexual competence education so that everybody felt on a level playing field from the beginning which you know will then go because it is because it's so much about power isn't it and authority and things like that and so we are so at the bottom end of it.
2: And you're really right to raise how important consent is as a part of this, because what I talk about in the book is equitable sex. All of us deserve access to equitable sex. What does that mean? That means that we're all far better educated and have awareness of how our different identities and backgrounds impact our access to equitable sex. And that it's all about understanding ourselves and our own bodies, and also about understanding the, uh, the bodies of our partners uh, and who, who we may encounter and being sensitive, empathetic, respectful uh, in sexual scenarios. So for example, I don't think I should have left school not knowing about the orgasm gap between heterosexual women and and men, as a young heterosexual woman about to enter into sexual maturity, nor was I fully equipped as a young person to understand if, if I were to ever be in bed with someone who was non-binary, the things I should be taking into account, um, the difference in background and possibly discrimination that they have experienced in my comparative privilege and understanding how I can make sure that, that the experience in the bedroom is equitable for both of us. These are all conversations about powers. you've just said, authority privilege we're all getting a bit better at spotting it in a lot of conversations we have in the media for example uh, very worthwhile anti-racism conversations now we now talk about privilege very easily with this we still aren't quite using this vocabulary when we talk about sex and it's not only what we uh, should all be trying to do a bit better as adults but it's what young people at school are intelligent and inquisitive enough to be told about too
0: And a term used in your book, which Emily just used, actually, is the term sexual competence. Now, if someone had said that to me or Emily at 18, we would have thought it meant that we had to learn how to give a good blowjob.
1: Yeah, yeah, Uh, totally. That would be like the skill.
0: And that is not what you're writing about, is it? What what does that mean in the context of of, of your expertise?
2: Yeah, it's like scientist jargon for ready. So it's what they use in the research papers when they try and see whether positive sexual health exists amongst young people it's quite serious really and they had four criteria when they looked at this and they looked at it from nationally representative data from the Natsal survey that we have in Britain that inspects our sexual attitudes and lives it's very good and it's four criteria for sexual competence at a sort of sexual initiation was was contraception used Were both partners as equally willing as each other? Was there autonomy in decision-making? And if you think about that, that's both pressure you may feel from partner as well as pressure you might feel from society at large Mm -hmm. and a sense of it happening at the right time for the individual. And this is obviously subjective. However, uh, a lot of young people are led to believe that the minute you turn 16 on your birthday, age of consent, woo, everyone's doing it. Um, so not that. Of this, So this is the four criteria. And the researchers found that over half of young women and over a third of young men are not sexually competent the first time um, that they decide to engage in sex. And it's worth pointing out here, I talk about this a lot in the book, but even... Sex research, some sex research is a bit more inclusive and broad than others, but a lot of sex research will only actually unpick the lives of heterosexual people
0: mm. or it
2: will only um, probe the lives of cisgendered people. So mm. even in talking to you, I'm limited with, with the kind of data I can offer up, but that in and of itself horrified me when I when I read about that and I couldn't believe I'd never encountered these figures before. I couldn't believe no one had... Told me about them when I was at school, but equally, generally in the media, and when we're having conversations about about sort of a rape culture crisis that's happening in, in in UK schools and universities, for example, that everyone's invited uncovered. Of course, it's happening because look at these figures. We're not setting young people up to fully understand consent because those criteria, equally willing as your partner autonomy of decision making you are far better prepared to make sure you you have you have that that you are autonomous and that you're both equally willing if you understand what equitable sex
0: means there's a theory a a myth really actually isn't there in sex education that the earlier you talk to children and young people about it the more likely they are to rush out and start doing it and therefore, it's a very dangerous practice to be too open with them. and And I understand from your book that the exact opposite is true.
2: Yeah, and we know that because the U.S. had a kind of reckoning with purity culture. You might remember it from the two thousands purity rings. I grew up watching Disney Channel stars who were all part of this.
1: Yeah, Justin Timberlake and Britney Spears. That was exactly there. They were sort right. Of, uh, and yes. Then, yeah. Yes.
0: Well, and then immediately going on to like you know. Suck lollipops and 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 you know it's just it, it, the whole thing was so disturbing if you look back on it. And then in these socks and fucking hell.
2: <laughs> and then in the mid to late two thousands, Congress commissioned studies to see if all this abstinence only education that was such a fundamental part of purity culture actually works or not. Their findings showed that comprehensive sex education, which gives everyone all the details they deserve, and it doesn't say just don't have sex. No, it educates them about safe sex and it gives it gives them information. Um, You are far more likely to delay sexual initiation to when you feel ready and the, the ages become later. And you are far more likely to use contraception when you do have sex so young people are far safer when they've had access to comprehensive sex education i mean it's
1: amazing educate them and they become smarter about it like wow i <laughs> was like, rever- <laughs> like wow well, i mean that's a revolutionary idea isn't but it? still
0: vibrating throughout almost every culture i think i know sweden is doing i mean typically and brilliantly work against this is this is this damaging dangerous cult of virginity which really puts girls and young women in great peril doesn't it in all Lots of different ways.
2: Yes. And the book began as just covering virginity uh, when I was first thinking about it. Because virginity and the ideas around it are obviously one of the first themes we start to acquaint ourselves with when we're young and we're thinking about sex, uh, sexual maturity, we're thinking ahead of it, and then we're thinking as it comes to us. The virginity myth is is the first, the origin horror story you hear about. It's the first myth. And if if you endorse it, if you let it take away your sense of what it truly means to be ready for sex or what it truly means to embark on a sexual journey, if you take on its ideas that your value is connoted to your sexual history, if you take on its ideas that people are different or worthy of different treatment, depending on whether they have had sex or not, you start believing in some of the other myths that then unfurl, and which I develop in the book. So, if you believe in the virginity myth and it's how it confers value, you perhaps believe that people, as you know, women, it hurts women most perniciously. But you believe that women physiologically carry signs of virginity, I. Mm. i.e., they that they will bleed on their wedding night or first time they have sex, or that tightness signifies virginity both of which have been debunked by the scientific community and that's what I, I go through i take the reader through papers and interviews with doctors in the book you also believe in that virility and sort of being sexually prolific also begins to confer a value and that's something that really really harms men um that that pressure is placed on them. None of us escape the virginity myth, basically. No. Um, that's what's most harmful about it.
0: I love it when you say, it's one of my favourite bits when you say, um, you know, because it's so fetishized virginity. If you, if you said, imagine if, if, if it were a woman's first orgasm that held economic, spiritual and social capital instead.
2: Had that been the case, if, if we grew up thinking that, who knows how much of the orgasm gap uh, would have been
1: decreased and and how many women girls would think oh god it must be me and all of those all of those things like you know the plastic surgery to have a more attractive vulva or vaginoplasty to have a tighter all of these things that husband stitch the husband stitch, all of that stuff, you just think, my goodness, you know, if female pleasure or, or pleasure or, or orgasms were sort of exactly treated with a kind of currency that wasn't about numbers exactly and values and body count, as you said, as you called it earlier, it would make such a difference to, to to the way that we viewed ourselves. And the way, I mean, you know, and it reflects on on men too. And it's, you know, I also, as you say, it's not just about hetero relationships. It's about, you know, if we take sex as a kind of base communication, between two people. If, if that works, then everything works. Do you know what I mean? In terms of it teaches us how to communicate on every level with people. Yeah. And there's also
2: this understanding that I don't think we get taught about at school and nor do I think we hear enough about it as adults. But our sexual health and wellbeing is part of our mental health and wellbeing. There is an intimate psychosexual link that we all have. And to to not address people's sexual health and wellbeing because it's taboo when you're discussing mental health is, in my view, a misstep. Uh, it has to somehow be included.
0: Delicately, perhaps, you know, depends, but. I mean, you would say a misstep, I would say moronic. <laughs> <laughs> this is an advertisement from BetterHelp Therapy Online. Now you guys know that we're not shy about getting things off our chest. The tiny inconveniences that can ruin our days to the big overwhelming worries that can flood our nights. Trouble is, we all got into the habit of saying, I'm absolutely fine. Emily and I added the but, specifically to get off autopilot and give ourselves the space to say what we were really experiencing.
1: But we weren't always so free with our inner furies. A few years ago, I began experiencing debilitating panic attacks because I felt I couldn't tell anyone all the things that I was feeling, that I was not coping, that I felt like a failure. I was so ashamed, so I kept it all bottled inside. And of course, it started leaking out. It was only when I found a therapist and began sharing those doubts and insecurities with
0: her that the panic began to dissipate. Because therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, why not give BetterHelp a try? It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist and switch therapists any for no additional charge.
1: With over a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise. And our listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com
0: midalt. That's better... H-E-L-P dot com slash MidAlt. Better help, because sometimes the best thing to do is acknowledge that we are not, in fact, absolutely fine.
1: (laughs) But particularly with teenagers, you know, I mean, you know, in terms of just at that very vulnerable point where they're learning all about social connection, about social interaction, about, you know, power, about hierarchy, about all of those things. And for them, for that, you know, already to be, you know, inequitable I don't know what that yeah if that's the word but I'm going to use it anyway but um it's bad but I also just even really basic horror stories in your book like the Houdini incident at university yeah
2: I was having a drink um with my boyfriend at the time and his mates and they were all discussing something that had happened in their halls the night before and even to this day so much of it became gossip and rumor that I think I'll never know how much of it was based in fact. But, yeah, they were all talking about how last night two people in their halls had attempted to do the Houdini. I obviously asked what is the Houdini? I'd never heard of it before. And it was an attempt to... for two men to have sex with the same person. The idea was that one man would be having sex with the girl in the dark and somehow during he would swap positions with the other man. And it, it this horrified me, because obviously... And the
0: girl would never and know. And the idea
2: was that the girl would never discover the ruse, uh, like Houdini the magician. And I remember being horrified. I remember, for me, it was very easy to s- understand that was rape. It was very easy for me to understand that is a disgusting thing that they tried to do, if it is true, if it isn't just something that they're, like, spreading around... Um, even if it is something that they're trying to spread around, how horrible. Like, everything about it was awful. And, yeah, I then, I remember that the girl that they said it had happened to, I saw her in the pub later, I didn't know her personally, and I remember thinking, how are you here? I was, all I could think of, if that was me, I'd be in my room sobbing, I I don't know what I would do. To this day, I don't know if it was ever reported or any, I, I still don't know the details, but it was enough. Except,
0: would she even have known? Oh well, you no. Know,
2: it just gets that like, even even more horrible. It gets more and more horrific, doesn't it? And I what I say in the book is that the guys, the guys were also horrified, but they were still talking about it all, half like it was there was humour to it, and I couldn't, I couldn't fathom that. And perhaps as I said earlier, in understanding equitable sex, I obviously as another woman immediately understood or try or sympathized with oh my goodness whereas perhaps there was a little mental block for for the young men who had not been set up to properly empathize and understand what had happened and I don't remember the name of one of the boys but I do of the other and as I was writing the book I thought let me look this guy up whoever who who did this whether he did it or whether he just spread the rumor that he did it this kind Even of guy, I want to look him up. I want to look is him up. It's a
1: violation, I think. And Even just spreading the rumors is a violation. Of course, of course, I completely agree.
2: And yeah, he went to a top private school. He went to a top university, is now in a top job. Um, and in the book, I say, you know, it's scary that in all of those environments where he theoretically had access, you know, unfair access to some of the top education in the world, he never learned how to sort of be a decent human being. And... What's even scarier is he's earning the kind of salary that will allow him to pay for his own son to go through exactly the same route if if nothing has changed and not learn the same things he should have learned.
0: And you have, it's no surprise, you have people uh, in positions of power all over the world who some significant part of them still believes that rape is a joke.
2: That in and of itself shows how little people are educated about what damage it causes. I think if, if, you, if you... Someone who's really well-educated and what it does to a person, wouldn't joke about
0: it. You talk about in your book, it's, it's schoolchildren and a boy having sex with a drunk girl who has never had sex before, and she's very traumatised, and his greatest worry, he asks, but are we still friends?
2: Yeah. So, obviously, in asking are we still friends, he must have had... You assume... You can speculate he must have had some kind of idea that his partner was not completely happy with what had happened or what was happening at the time he was doing it.
0: It's part of what you talk about where you say, you know, because, you know, of course, we were brought up with no means no, super simple, super clear. That was it. And what that has evolved towards is experts saying that perhaps instead of simplifying how we talk about consent, we need to complicate it.
2: Yes, I was really fascinated when a researcher directed me to a paper that I mentioned in the book about heterosexual couples and anal sex and the normalised coercion of young women to have anal sex with partners. Um, and obviously, there are plenty of, plenty of women who, who do want to do it. This isn't, this isn't about consenting scenarios here. I'm talking about how when they interviewed young men, there was like an expectation of f- female pain that they disregarded. So yeah. they were... It wasn't that they didn't know... That it can be painful for some people and that that's a reason why they don't want to do it. It was that they disregarded that. Yeah, they didn't care. And um, a lot of them, they themselves faced sort of some societal pressures, i.e. all my mates are doing it. Therefore, if I don't do it, what am I going to be seen as? And I I just thought, I was horrified by it. And I was like, I think, I think you can distill this in an age-appropriate manner to young people and tell them about it and, and tell them about... Moments in which even in loving relationships and scenarios or with people they super, super fancy, it may happen that someone tries to coerce you into something that you're not 100% sure you want to do. Or perhaps you kind of think to yourself, mm, I am a bit curious, but I think <laughs> need to do a bit more research or, or shouldn't this need a bit more prep? Questions like that. Uh, and that is equitable sex when those things yeah, yeah. are
1: taken into account. And, and I think as women, because of the lack of nuance with consent, you know, as in no means no or whatever, you know, we have, and I speak from personal, like, bitter personal experience, you know, and you talk about it very eloquently in the book, laying there and gone. well, I've made my bed, I'm here, so let's just get it you know, over with, even though I don't want to anymore, because I'm sobered up, or because I suddenly have got the ick, or whatever it is, or I actually feel very vulnerable and uncomfortable, or it hurts, exactly. And you think, oh, God, you know, and you and I definitely did not know that I at any point that I was able to withdraw consent in a kind of in, in a way. And I think that that's Also there was a bit of an
0: expectation of pain wasn't there because you know there's such a disregard of female pain across the board.
1: It's really
2: bizarre how women are simultaneously told erroneously sex is supposed to be painful or that pain is normal and then also that oh no getting an IUD fitted not painful at all we're not going to give you anything for that (laughs) It's like they pick and choose where we are and aren't allowed to experience pain.
0: Imagine if men had, had smear tests and, and and coils fitted. I mean, it, you know, <laughs> they'd be under general anaesthetic for everything. Um, but you know, and equally, there's a tension between sex is is supposed to hurt, but you've got to have an orgasm or you're a failure.
2: Yes, that is, um, and even I, I even think twice as well when I talk about fixing the orgasm gap because obviously. For a lot of people, it is quite challenging reaching orgasm. I think a lot of us aren't educated to understand it It might take some time and practice to work out how to do it if you've never done it before yourself. And unsurprisingly, you know, that there are so many people every year who in the UK are referred uh, to psychosexual services for uh, an orgasmia, the inability to reach orgasm. So I think... When I talk about pleasure-focused sex and equitable sex, doesn't mean there has to be an orgasm, because obviously for a lot of us that like, it can be quite like difficult. Um, and orgasmless sex is not necessarily uh, unpleasurable, is it? So...
0: It's not necessarily <laughs> failure sex.
1: No, not no, at all exactly.
0: So this has all been, you know, a god awful mess. So I want to ask you now. How do we think the future is looking? Is it looking bright? Are things going in the right direction? Who did you talk to who made you feel optimistic about the way that we talk and teach about sex?
2: Every day that I spend doing what I do, which is obviously very much based on the internet, on social media. I spend a lot of time scrolling through For You pages and whatnot. I am very happy to see how many people we have trying to reach out into the ether and bring complete strangers sex education in my book I didn't only interview people who are sex educators for a living I interviewed people who are gynecologists you know I interviewed people who don't need you know they are not paid to nor need to make time out of their working day to make videos for complete strangers who can't access who don't have the knowledge base that they have and I guess I'm in a similar position in that I really didn't need to write a book like this necessarily. Um, I don't need to TikTok as part of my job or do any work beyond news reporting. But the minute that I knew that this book could become a reality, it really has become something very important to me. Even in January, I did my qualification that trained me up to deliver relationships and sex education here in the UK. And... There are people who do really want to change things. That what I talk about in the book is that it's not necessarily lack of people, but it's lack of resourcing and an overabundance of obstacles. So if you've got lots of brilliant people, but even like one sex educator I interviewed in the UK, he just doesn't he doesn't have the funding. Like local authorities used to fund this, and they don't fund it anymore. Who's going to fund the next generation of sex educators? Doesn't look like it's going to be the government. So who's it going to be? Is it going to be entirely self-funded? People I speak to, even like me, you know, my own training was self-funded. People are doing it outside of their day jobs. And because their day jobs, give them give them the funding in order to do it. Is that a healthy, long-lasting, standardised means of training the next group of sex educators? No way. I mean,
0: you've got to wonder if half the people handing out funding are these same kinds of people who think the Houdini Jape is hilarious. I mean, you know, how much prejudice is woven through power still. And, you know, hopefully that that will, you know, it will work. It will worm its way out as the next generation comes through.
2: Yes. And I also think that we are gradually seeing a number of uh, initiatives or products targeted at women about self-education when it comes to sex and they are. I increasingly do see them kind of getting through to me. It used to be that they were really heavily censored. I know. Um, I was so angry media.
1: about that. You were there were sort of millions of erectile dysfunction adverts on Facebook, and hardly anything about kind of you know for for vibrators or whatever. People, you know, the ads would be suppressed or not. Or even you were same...
0: saying that you were saying that that, that 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 some information around menopause was censored because they thought it was porn.
2: It's, so it's, it's not bonkers.
0: It, yeah.
2: It's bonkers. And part of this is down to how, when sex goes wrong, so like sexual dysfunction or low sexual function, when it happens uh, to people with penises, they know there's a pill for it or they have heard there's a pill for it. And so there's an immediate understanding that there's possibly a medical solution here uh, one that hopefully I can get over the counter and I don't have to face the embarrassment of seeing a GP because that's how so many, that's how a lot of people unfortunately feel. For women and people like with vaginas, vulvas, it's not necessarily what we're told. As we've already said here, you're told sex is painful. You find that sex is, is painful. You don't think I should see a doctor about this. You you may think, well, this is it. This is what sex is. This is my lot. That is my <laughs> lot. So what is would would be really great to see is even more of that kind of information reaching us in spaces like social media where sort of vast numbers can be reached to start educating people when I talk about sex education you know, the front cover of the book like the subtitle sex education for the 21st century for me that has a really broad meaning because it's never only about lessons at school what happens to generations and populations who did not get access to comprehensive sex ed are no longer in a learning environment how are you going to reach people and like i say in the book i'm not a doctor i'm not a sex therapist you know emily's I almost a doctor, doctor. Yes, exactly. i I've,
1: I've watch so much crazy nationally that i am obviously that's not
2: obviously. my area of expertise but my area of expertise is storytelling and the power of storytelling can change the world i really really believe that even well, amen amongst to that. all the people that we hold to account and demand for please do more for us it's not only politicians it's even it's like commissioners
1: it's news editors it's about how do we get this information
2: in front of people's
1: eyeballs and also parents I have to say you know if you're not going to have the conversation with them for whatever reason you know they're going to learn from someone else someone who isn't you know an authority or someone who isn't necessarily best placed or they'll learn it from you know they may be lucky to find you on social media Sophia but they may find something else which isn't in any way nutritious for them yeah so you've got we've got to have the conversations we've got to be brave and you know talk to them about it in a way that isn't didactic, and, shaming. and so we can read your book. Yeah, and shaming, exactly. Like, you may be feeling like this, but, you know, and and it is hard, because obviously, you know, these conversations are awkward, and people do feel, you know, that that's such a trope, isn't it? Such a cliche of the awkward sort of parental sex conversation. But it has to be done, because always they're going to learn from someone well, else. Well,
0: Sophia writes in her book that children and young people would rather get their sex education at school.
2: Yes, but... Here are some caveats, and this is also a message to any parents listening. Uh, Young people most prefer their sex education coming from their schools. Number two is parents. Number three are healthcare professionals, you know, maybe the school nurse or maybe someone that they see at the gum clinic. We know during COVID, especially... Sex education was one of the first lessons to disappear off the timetable and young people who responded to a survey saying that also in the vast majority responded saying that they had not had a discussion with their parents about about sex. So I would urge parents, if, if you are concerned, if, and I think if you listen to podcasts like this, you're, you're a parent on the right track. But if you if you're thinking, how do I have these conversations, I would take healthy curiosity in the sex ed your young person's having access to at school you might actually be rather impressed with what they're being told or you might think oh I see oh so he or she they know about this Mm, I don't know if they're going to have covered this and it might be that as the parent as someone who understands them as someone who might be able to have conversations with them in a way that a teacher can't it's about filling filling some of these gaps and helping to to understand where they need knowledge and the last thing i'll say is that not talking about anything at all does nothing to make your young person think that sex isn't taboo or that's or that there is something that i have to keep private and hidden and actually if you speak a little bit more openly you can speak openly with while still maintaining privacy that's what I do. You know, I still maintain complete privacy about my own sex life and I've written a whole book about sex. It is possible. You can speak authoritatively about sexual health and well-being with your young person without it ever getting icky or whatever. And even in my sex ed training, you know, the worst thing you could do is be squeamish when you deliver information to young people. We aren't squeamish when we're doing it. So why would you be squeamish when you're talking
0: to someone authoritatively about it? If in doubt, losing it. And uh, Emily and I highly, highly recommend it. And Sophia, thank you so much for coming and talking to us with such wisdom and um, charisma about this bottomlessly fascinating, pardon the pun, fascinating <laughs> subject.
1: There have been a lot of puns, actually. There has been a lot of vib- things vibrating through the atmosphere. I,
0: I know, it. we've had to be grown up about it, though, haven't we, for once, Emily? <laughs> I
1: know, I know. I, know. Um, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to recover from being so serious. Okay.
0: <clears throat> you're wearing a very serious shirt. You look very Victorian today. It's still got a sort of rough...
1: Yeah, well, there you go. It was because we're, it's a
0: serious subject. It's a serious thank conversation. You. Sophia, thank you so, so much. And yeah, I'm sure we'll be it. talking to you again because I can't wait to see what you do next. Oh,
1: thank you.
0: Thank you so much. Bye. You've been listening to Annabelle Rifkin and Emily McMeekin
1: of The Middlet. Our book, I'm Absolutely Fine, is out now. If you like what you hear, please rate, review and subscribe.